This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. Tom, welcome to the show. Honored to meet you. Uh, I know you are an expert in a, in a piece of this industry, or many pieces of this industry. You, you even called yourself a multifamily commercial real estate nerd. I don't, I don't consider myself to that high of, of expertise, but... But I, I appreciate that. But also, I want to dive in today, you know, on a specific skill set that, man, I, I feel like I, I've seen um, a number of operators try to do this. And, and it's, I think, more difficult than we all expected, right? Uh, but before we do, give us a little more about who you are, your background in commercial real estate, and then let's dive in. Sure. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me on and excited to, to speak with you and add as much value to your audience as I can. Uh, my background in real estate started while I was in college. I went to Columbia University in New York City. I got my real estate salesperson's license while I was at school. I always knew I wanted to get into the industry, but really didn't have any any clue on how to do it. And that felt like the, the kind of the easiest path. I applied to every brokerage firm after I got my salesperson's license, was able to, to secure a job. And then you know, I, I joke, but the kind of the rest was history. I leveraged the salesperson's job into getting internships over the summers at a real estate investment firm, leveraged that experience after graduating to go work for one of the largest developers in New York City, really as an intern. And I held on to that job as hard as I could and was able to climb my way up there to a project manager. And um, while I was there, I was able to work on some amazing ground up developments in the five boroughs and large, what I refer to as adaptive reuse projects. Everyone's talking about this today, buying class C office buildings in tier one cities, in my case, New York City, gut running, renovating them and turning them into live, work, play hotel, live, you know, a lot of different versions. What we did is we converted it into a hotel and a retail component, as well as 700 plus multifamily apartments. After working in the private sector, I wanted to get a more kind of level up and get a broader view. And I went and worked for one of the largest home builders, developers in the nation. I worked for the Lennar Corporation. I'm sure you're familiar and your audience is probably as familiar as well. I think they're 150 on the Fortune 500 right now. And I, I did development for them in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Pennsylvania. And then early 2022, uh, with a friend and an investment partner of mine from Columbia, I founded my company, Terra Capital. Terra is a what we refer to as a small multifamily aggregator. So we acquire sub-institutional sub 20 unit value add properties in the Midwest, specifically Pittsburgh, Columbus, and Indianapolis. We add a tremendous amount of value to them, bring them to top of market standards, use the same suite of prop tech across the whole portfolio. And we roll them up into 200 unit plus portfolios in each city um, that you know get operational efficiencies, and I can dive into any aspect of that. Uh, you know, our, our goal is to institutionalize the lower middle market. And I can just give one or two stats that I read in a, in a recent industry article by Thesis Driven. That article claimed that 80% 
of the U.S. multifamily housing stock is in sub 50 unit properties. And only 6% of that 80% is owned by institutional groups. So what we're really targeting is kind of the fresh powder in the industry, the same way single family home aggregators targeted the single family home space 15 years ago. And I think that technology and really people's perspective and also the capital markets and the debt markets in particular have gotten to a point where the small multifamily aggregation strategy can actually work. You see institutional groups like Carlisle doing it in Brooklyn. You see Veritas in California doing it with institutional backing and uh, Terra is is poised to to be the one doing it in the Midwest. Love that. I, I like that you like, you know what you're looking for. <laughs> Like, this is our plan. This is what we're after. Uh, I like how you just laid that out there. Uh, and it, and it's a different, I would say a different business model than majority of the people that we have on the show, right? That are looking for a larger multifamily or self-storage or whatever it may be, right? You know, whatever asset class. But it's not typically, say, aggregating small multifamily, you know, like you're talking about. Uh, let's, let's talk to that just a moment because uh, speak to some of the some of the difficulties around doing that that we may yeah. not experience, say, with, you know, buying a 200-unit apartment building? Mentally, the property, one individual property, once you pass, really, you know, depending what MSA you're in, 140 units if you're in a high price per door MSA, 180 if you're in a lower price per door MSA, is the point where you can bring on full-time staff for a building, right? And, and have operational efficiencies. So I think a lot of operators like the the regional property manager for that that large company or or the owner of that company likes to be able to hit the easy button in theory and hire one individual that is trained as a property manager that takes care of that one asset right and and I think you can also make the argument that the one individual asset is easier to manage because there's one roof versus 500 roofs right that's a common argument as well um what I've seen is that the most important thing in the small multifamily strategy is scale. In the same way you're trying to get to the 140, 180 units in that individual asset, you have to race to get there in our business as well. But once you have 400 units in a submarket, your buying power, your your ability to get people to work for you, the 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 handyman, the service team members, you have a, an enormous network and you're able to kind of take advantage of that buying power in the market and and it becomes a lot easier. If you're at 20 units, 30 units, 40 units and it's all scattered out, even sometimes 10 units those are the people that we end up buying from because over time it gets extraordinarily difficult and people get burned down because they weren't able to hire a great regional property manager to manage the whole portfolio. They aren't able to staff service team members because they only have 10 units. So I think it's really scale. And then you can't compromise on your finishes. You have to renovate everything to the same standards. You have to be disciplined. You can't say, okay, this one, I'm not going to replace the plumbing. This one, I'm not going to put in the, the um, leak sensors. You know, you have to be very disciplined to meet a certain standard. And it's something that, you know, I was, I've always invested in small multifamily, even, you know, while I had a W2 job, like a lot of people, 
it was growing pains for me. I may save $10,000 on a renovation, but now it's a headache for, for many years. So I think it's important to buy in an uninstitutional inefficient space to get a low enough basis that you can renovate to your proven standards and then roll it up at scale to have buying power in the market. So I hope that answers. No, I love that. Uh, and it's it's hard to get past that 40 or 50, right? You're talking about scaling. Uh, you know, and how how have you all done that? What's the plan to do that so you don't get burnout at the 40 units? We raised discretionary fund to start. So we had proof of concept with a few small multis that me and my business partner did on our own balance sheet. Then we were like, here's our strategy. We're able to buy these predominantly off market. Right now we're at around 70% off market. At the time, we were probably closer to like 25% off market just because we didn't have the engine revving the way it is today. And we were able to, through friends and family and some colleagues of ours from the industry, um, raise enough money to be able to pass that threshold in that first fund rather than syndicating each deal along the way. And that allowed us to have the confidence to execute the business plan. I think that if we had kind of done it one off and done syndication, 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 it would have been possible. But in the Midwest with low price per unit, it would have been very difficult. And we could have ran into this exact problem that you're highlighting. That was our first fund. And we are on to our second now. Yeah, I love the the thought behind that and the plan to be able to scale quickly to get past that burden right off the bat, yeah, right? Uh, but, you know, I would, something else I want to highlight for the listener is that, you know, you have some experience, I think, that's helped you in this type of business plan as well. And something you even elaborated that we talked about before we started recording is just the construction management piece. Uh, and I, I think, you know, even if you have, let's say, three or four 200 unit properties across, you know, in, in one metro, that can be difficult, right? The construction management piece, much less if you have duplex or sixplex or whatever, you know, that are 200 units that way that are scattered all over the all over the the, the city, right? Uh, and so, you know, let's dive in there just a little bit, because I think that's helped you, no doubt. I feel like that's a, a leg up, right, on a, on a business model like this, where you can uh, uh, maybe achieve, you know, those types of remodels and the construction piece, where somebody without that experience may not, right, be, be able to have that kind of confidence. Uh, and so speak to, let's dive in on the construction management piece. Are they all deep remodels? Are they, you know, that's the type you're looking for? I think you said a Class C office, uh, you know, at one point, right? Um, and, and speak to, let's dive into the construction management piece and what helps you to be successful doing that. Yeah. So it's unfortunate, but I would say there are very few projects that are too scary for us. I, at, I don't remember how old to call it, 21, 22, was thrown into the middle of one of the largest adaptive reuse projects in the history of New York City. And the team was falling apart. The GMP was falling apart. The construction manager just walked off the job. The architect, and I'm an intern working for the development manager, the head of development that's left with this project. And be, and I worked on that project for the, for the next two to three years. Getting that level of experience that early in my career has been so extraordinarily valuable for me. And the network of people in the construction industry that I have gotten out of that are really a powerful kind of powerful resource for me. If I ever have a question and, and it still comes up, I have some of the best architects, engineers, construction managers 
that are living that I can call and bounce ideas back and, and, and come up to come up to, um, you know, the, the right answer or east, at least a answer. But I would say our typical project today looks like a timber built three story property that um, was either built in, if it's in Pittsburgh, you know, in the 1930s, if it's in Indianapolis, call it the 1970s. But a lot of these properties were originally constructed as single family homes. And then over the last 70, 80 years were converted um, to multifamily residences. They've often been renovated at some point in that whole hundred year, near hundred year period. But really we're doing heavy value add. We have done some light value add. We we don't like to do it because you are inheriting kind of a finished product. And then it gets- You would rather it be a deep value add where you're just gutting and replacing 100%. everything. Wow. That's that's what we do. You know, we have I think we have 18 of those projects going on today. But I think that from a construction management standpoint, I train the guys that work for us the same way I was trained. And it's by running projects and doing it. And I think that you very early on take off the guardrails because it's often you can often fix problems and i'll and i'll use two quick examples of mistakes that i've made that um you know i think about a lot and i and i, I tr it limits the amount of mistakes that i make going forward but i think there's lessons to be learned from both of them. so the first one is i one time was doing a, a large conversion the one i mentioned earlier and i think i was kind of getting confident and i was doing well the project was going well and i was working with the structural engineer and I had the shop drawings and I had the, um, you know, the iron workers with us. And I was like, yeah, no, you're approved to put in the, in the beam. And I, by saying that, you know, took the responsibility on as owner or owner rep that the beam could go there. We found out that the beam could not go there. And uh, taking down a structural beam and moving it is a uh, is something that I hope no one has to go through. Um, but that that's really you know the lesson of even if you're doing well and, and you're succeeding in constructions, like just triple check before you you point and shoot. And that's been something that's been very val valuable mantra in my mind over the years. And I've caught a lot of mistakes. You know, we do a, a good amount of structural work when when properties are the wood is rotted and we need to replace joists. We do a lot of structural work and, and every piece of the structural work from the, the initial scope of work, from the actual install to the, to the, um, you know, final inspection, we hire a structural engineer actually to visit the site. And yes, you spend 300, 400, $500 more, but it, it pays for itself in the long run, um, to kind of catch those issues. So measure twice, cut once. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't, I, yes, I, yes, exactly. Uh, and then the sec, the second one, and I'll just tell this quickly is that, and this just speaks to the importance of having good people and firing quickly. That's, that's kind of the, the lesson I, I take from this. We were doing, a, I was working for Lennar Corporation. We were doing, putting up a superstructure in Jersey City. And I was a development manager, had very little to do with the construction management at this point. We were pouring the 17th floor of a luxury rental building in downtown Jersey City. And 
we had looked at the weather and everything was good. We we were fine pouring it. And then 2 a.m., the weather dropped. And I'm sleeping at home. And my phone starts going off and uh, the chats start going off and everyone's panicking. And we had such an amazing, super construction manager and team that every and and people had kind of treated everyone so well throughout the project that everyone is able to mobilize get heat blankets get tarps up and within a few hours in the middle of the night you know save the concrete they it, it cured correctly we tested it with the structural engineer we did sampling and uh you know the project continued and it's did phenomenally well and rented above pro forma and it's a gorgeous property but if that had not happened, you would have to take out that whole entire slab. The project would have stopped. The subcontractors would have gotten hurt. The development would have gotten hurt. The insurance companies would have stepped in. It would have fully derailed it. But the ability for people to have ultimate ownership and to mobilize you know, so quickly, I think has really been amazing. And I'm very blessed now in our markets to have phenomenal contractors. And that was painful to get those types of team members. I think a lot of people, especially when they start out, and, and I was talking about this with someone yesterday, I think the longer you do construction management, the quicker you are to fire people. And that's the, no one's good at hiring people. It's fake news. It's impossible. You may think you're good at hiring people, but you're not. You have to be good at firing people. And, and you'll, through that process of churn and burn, and you kind of have to turn off your emotions a little bit, which is unfortunate, but through that churn and burn, you can really get phenomenal, a phenomenal team. So I would say like, keep, always be interviewing, always be getting new subcontractors, contractors, laborers, whatever it is. And if it's not working out, don't feel bad. Maybe give a second chance. I don't even know if I do anymore. It's unfortunate, but I don't even know if I do anymore. And that's been really beneficial because now we have great people in our markets. Uh, and so grateful to have you on the show. How can the listeners get in touch with you and learn more about you? Easiest is if you go to our website, usaterra.com, all is accessible there. Wes, welcome to the show. You know, you are an expert in a, a piece of our business that's very important. I'll I'll just go ahead and say, uh, you know, it's it's uh, you know taxes, man, or where we can save on taxes or how we structure things uh, is is something I feel like we just can't ever learn enough about. <laughs> it seems mm -hmm. so complicated at times, but you know, you're one of those experts that we have to have on our team that helps us, uh, you know, help our investors in a massive way as well. Uh, and so we're going to dive in. Uh, Wes, give us a little bit more about who you are, though, maybe your your background and in, in getting to where you're at now. Uh, and let's dive in. Sure, man. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me, Whitney. Uh, my name is Wes Mabry. I'm the owner of 1245 Consulting. We are a, a specialty tax consulting firm that specializes in cost segregation studies. I started in the cost seg field back in 2006. I was a real estate appraiser at the time, worked in that capacity for about uh, 10 years. As a real estate appraiser, uh, I worked for one of the only firms in the country I know of that's using appraisers exclusively for cost seg. So you got good experience in the industry there, got hired away from that by an engineering firm out on the East Coast and still doing cost seg. Uh, but they had me out on the road and I would take meetings with um, their clients, which I had never done before. And so in that, I had a little bit of exposure to kind of the sales side of things. And uh, the hamster wheel started turning a little bit. And then in 2017, 
the tax cuts and jobs that came out ushered in the 100% bonus depreciation. I thought, you know, hell, it sells itself now. Uh, so why not start my own firm? And I did. And it's been a wild ride ever since. We service clients nationwide and uh, we're still a small firm. We're a team of nine just doing cost saving. That's it. That's our bag. Awesome. Well, I want to jump into, you know, we, we've talked about it a, a number of times on the show. It's been a little bit, though. Uh, believe it or not. Uh, and so, but, but, you know, we'll start at a high level and maybe explain what cost seg is, why it's important to, you know, people in commercial real estate on the operator side, but maybe also for passive investors. Sure. So cost segregation is the process of accumulating depreciation to offset your income tax liability. And we do that by analyzing the building that you've acquired, identifying all of the components spreading those components into various asset class life categories. Some of those categories you can write off quickly. Some of those are just going to take forever to get off the books. But the ones you can write off more quickly help you accumulate losses, losses through a non-cash expense. That's depreciation in a nutshell. And part of the real estate strategy is to generate cash flow through income producing properties and then one of the major benefits you get from being in that sector is the ability to offset the tax liability of that cash flow with uh, depreciation. And it's a phenomenal tool. Um, oftentimes, investors will use it in conjunction with the 1031 exchange, which I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with. And uh, it's powerful stuff, man. It helps uh, defer income tax payments for many, many, many years. On the GPLP side, that can... You know, you can see a, a variable of how things work. Some of the more established GPs in the game don't let the losses trickle down. They can hoard them. It all depends on what you've got written up in your operating agreement. Um, if you're a, a very experienced LP and you don't uh, necessarily have to pacify your investor pool, maybe you, you know, have the leverage to keep that depreciation for yourself. But there are other uh, GPs that choose to distribute that. And it's a lever they can pull to attract investors and um, also help them help their investors along in their journey by shielding the income that the properties are kicking off. So it's a, it's a good tool for GPs to use and, a, and an important one for LPs to understand. So why would you know, someone use a cost segregation study you know, versus not? I know we talked a little bit about the appreciation and I know it's accelerating that, but what's the case for somebody that shouldn't use it? You shouldn't use it if perhaps you are um, expecting a huge decrease in, in income. Like if you, if you don't have the income to use the losses to offset, that's a reason not to use it. Sometimes you can't use it. If you're a foreign investor, you're disqualified from, uh, well, bonus depreciation. You can still cost it. Um, if you have a tax-exempt tenant, in your building, you, you can't bonus depreciate. You can still cost seg. You just got to do it a little slower. Um, so there's a couple reasons why you wouldn't want to go forward with the cost seg study. But for the ma vast majority of investors, this is this is a good strategy. There are some delineators between passive and non-passive losses. Important things to understand. If you don't meet the IRS threshold for a, a professional real estate investor then losses that you generate through real estate activity will only offset passive income. And for many folks, that's great. You, you get 20 G's of, of uh, disbursements a year from, a, from an LP play, and then you've got you know, some losses through depreciation. You can apply only towards that 
uh, passive income, that's great. That's a good strategy. It helps you shield things. However, if you're a, a non-passive investor or sometimes an also called an active real estate investor, um, then those losses generated from real estate activity can offset all kinds of things, including W-2 wages uh, for you or and or your spouse. So uh, there's some different applicability to how the losses can be used. And it's important to, um, I always encourage my clients to run this cost seg idea by their tax professionals because they have the full picture. Oftentimes the cost seg provider just has a little snippet of what's going on. So it's always good to kind of combine the cost segregation experience with the tax professional experience to see how to really pull all the levers you can to defer some income tax liability. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, just elaborating on that. I think it's very helpful for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar yet uh, with what a cost segregation study is. I want us to dive through some of the step-by-steps, you know, about getting that done or as on the operator side, but then you know, I was just thinking about what about, you know, different business plans that may affect whether we are uh, or asset classes that uh, may affect whether we should do a cost seg or not. You know, uh, you know, whether it's a class C heavy value add versus a class A uh, that's, you know, brand new. Right. Are, are we still going to do a cost seg on both of those uh, or is it going to be one where, you know, if it's a long term hold versus short term hold, things like that. How would that affect, you know, whether we should do a cost seg or not? So if you're doing the. Class C with the heavy lift, you've got a couple different capital outlays, we'll call them. You've got your acquisition, that's you're buying the structure that you're going to repair or fix up or mark to market, whatever. And that is a an opportunity to segregate costs. You have costs there in the initial acquisition. You bought a building, it's got you know parking, fencing, landscaping, interior assets, appliances, flooring millwork, window coverings, all those things, you should get analyzed. You can draw out losses from that. And then when you begin to do your value add, there is another capital outlay. And this may even take years as tenants turn over, as tenants move out, units turn over. You've got additional capital outlay. You've got additional opportunity to segregate costs. Uh, let's look at a typical unit turn. You replace the floor. You can take some bonus depreciation on that. Maybe you change out the appliance package. You can take depreciation on that. You add a little water hookup where there wasn't one. You can take depreciation on that. Most of the stuff you do in the bathroom is not going to qualify. Your paint's not going to be able to be accelerated. Um, drywall work, maybe that's an expense item. We can talk about that later. But the point is this. Um, for the heavy lift guy, there's multiple opportunities to utilize cost segregation. For your um, listeners, maybe they go out and buy a value add. Absolutely. That thing's ready to go. You've got some depreciation in there. It's worth exploring cost segregation uh, for sure. And then um, through the asset class spectrum, some perform better than others. And when I say perform, I mean perform under analysis. We'll go in, we'll look at the property, we'll identify components that can be depreciated more quickly than others. And the ones that perform well, apartments, they do pretty good. The assisted living facilities, right. uh, senior communities, they have some of similar elements as apartments do, um, but they've also got that administrative piece. They have uh, rehab facilities in there, often full kitchens, um, where we'll find additional opportunities for depreciation. Those are excellent performing assets. There's special carve-outs in the tax code for your car wash listeners. You can write off the whole damn thing. I mean, it's... 100% almost, it's it's high, upper 90s uh, when we 
think of it in terms of what can be reclassed. Car washes, quick service oil change places, special carve out for those that perform extraordinarily well. Specialty manufacturing facilities, they do great uh, under cost seg analysis. Um, climate controlled storage, really well. Regular drive up storage still does pretty good. Your Airbnbs, your single family guys, those are fairly pedestrian in terms of uh, what we find in cost seg. The ones that don't do as well, like warehousing, you kind of walk into a building, you look, look left, you look right, there's not a lot there. Oftentimes there's more opportunities for depreciation outside those facilities than there are inside those facilities, still worth doing. Um, quick service restaurants do phenomenally well because they're very specialized. And also, um, you know, strip centers, we see a lot of those. Depends on the tenant mix. If it's a lot of big box stores, like your, your dollar store, your hardware store, and uh, you know the uh, card and gift shop, those do fairly well. When you start adding to the mix a lot of restaurants, uh, they do much, much better in terms of what you'll see reclassed. Nice, now that's helpful. You know, you even mentioned you know, like an Airbnb model made me think of this and, and uh, often on the show we wouldn't, maybe call this commercial real estate unless you were a scale, you know, with them. But, but I was even thinking about that investor who, uh, cause we all know like commercial real estate, all the, a lot of the, the asset classes, things you mentioned where we need to do a cost seg, we're going to accelerate that, you know, for us and our investors. I even thought on the other end of that, I say, I, you know, I buy a single family home, we're going to Airbnb it. Uh, you know, we might keep it. We are planning maybe to keep it long-term, right? Do we still need to, uh, or would, could we still benefit from a cost seg on that as well? Heck yeah. We did over 200 Airbnbs last year. <laughs> and the unique thing about the, what it's technically called the short-term rental class is that, uh, and this will throw some parameters around it, short-term rental, average lease under 30 days. So, you know, you could mess that up if you have an Airbnb and you, you know, block off six months for one tenant. Um, so, do some homework around that. Make sure your, you know, your average lease is under 30 days. And then if it is, you, you're technically operating a hotel in the eyes of the tax code. And so it actually is a commercial property and not a residential facility. And that's a great thing because when you make improvements to those types of properties, you're eligible for uh, qualified improvement property regulations, which is something we can dive into a little deeper if you want. Uh, but an Airbnb is really just a house the duration of the lease is what separates that from just your standard rent home. We do a lot of rent homes as well. Um, portfolios of single family rentals still do pretty well in cost segregation. Just to paint it with a, a wide brush, uh, for every 100,000 in basis, you're probably going to find in a short term rental 12,000 in losses in the first year. So, yeah, you know, it's worth it. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I just uh, I know there's probably a number of listeners who also have Airbnbs who are, have not thought about, you know, a cost segregation study on those assets. So just wanted yeah. to allow that you to elaborate class there. Has just been smoking hot over the last few years. I think with the um, frothy rate environment, we're seeing some folks kind of say, "Hey, well, maybe maybe we need to slow down this acquisition piece here." But uh, for the most part, man, we we still see an absolute ton of short-term rentals. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. 
I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.